Welcome to the Public Orality. On this special edition of the Public Orality, I'm the guest, and the guest host is no stranger to the Public Orality, it's Brown University political science professor Corey Brettschneider. And the topic is my forthcoming book, The Radical Declaration, an Enlightened American Idea, Five Essays on the Declaration of Independence. Hello, uh, this is Corey Brettschneider. Uh, this show is called Public, uh, The Public Morality, and my guest today, of course, is none other than Byron uh, Williams, who's normally the host of our show, uh, but today is uh, in the hot seat and going to be subject uh, to some uh, tough questions about his excellent uh, new book. Uh, so welcome, Byron, and uh, nice to see you. Honored to have you sit in, my friend. Honored to have you sit in. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm going to uh, just begin, I think, by, by jumping uh, right in. Okay. Um, uh, tell us, uh, if you could, what motivated you to write this book and how you came up with the title and just the, the basics. I should just read it to everyone. It's called The Radical Declaration, and the subtitle is uh, An Enlightened American Idea. Well, it, 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 you know, my books... You know, I, I would love to say that, you know, I, when my books come to me uh, as I'm, you know, I'm walking down the street and I get hit by a bolt of lightning and a <laughs> voice cries out, Byron, write this book. That's not quite how it happens for me. So it usually something occurs and then something else occurs and then I get the idea to write the book. So I was uh, at one of my Wake Forest courses that I was teaching. This one was called um, The Public Theological Voice, where I was combining theological principles um, with sort of that public morality, the Declaration, the Constitution, things, and the Emancipation Proclamation. So anyway, we were talking about the Declaration, and I asked, is this a radical document? Right. And everybody kind of looked around, and two brave souls said no. So it was, you know, it's one of those sort of pregnant pauses, like we should say it's a radical document, but we don't we, – don't want to say that, and we didn't say anything. But two brave souls says, no, it's not. One said because they borrowed heavily from the Magna Carta, and the other one, other student said, well, it's just words on a piece of paper doesn't have any relevance to today. I proceeded to go on about a 25-minute soliloquy explaining why this is a radical document. Mm. And then when I got done, it was sort of dead silence, and then one of the students looked at me and said, um, Professor Williams, um, you should write that. <laughs> and that's, 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 how, that's how it happened. Those are the best ideas. Let me get into this idea of a radical idea. And I, I'm going to kind of go through the book. And uh, for your listeners, I mean, they're not going to be surprised to hear me say this. This is a, a really magisterial work that's got everything from contemporary ideas about voting rights and where we need to move in the future, but it's also a deep look at America's framers, what are sometimes called the founding fathers, uh, and also the sort of contradictions of the ideas that we're going to talk about, the radical ideas and what's actually happened in history. Uh, but I do want to start with a, with a challenge um, that I think some uh, uh, readers and, and listeners might have, which is you know, you're so indebted in the radical idea to the Declaration, of course, and even to Thomas Jefferson. So how can it, you know, your radical idea is partly about a promise of equality uh, in addition to a promise of liberty. And so I think a lot of people just listening to this, not having seen how the book develops, might start with just a basic question, which is how can this guy, 
who was a you know slaveholder after all, uh, be a hero of a book about equality, even if he he penned the words of the Declaration. So, what do you think about that? That's a great question. It's very similar to to one that I had uh, a young man. Uh, at Laney College in Oakland, I was giving a lecture, asked pretty much the same question. And my response to him was, you shouldn't reduce a near-perfect document to the flawed hands that wrote it. So, there, so there's two things. And, and who Thomas Jefferson was and what he did are, 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 are separate. There's a number of people who've written about the personal Jefferson. And, and let's be honest, even publicly, Thomas Jefferson was an enigma. I mean, he... He talked about limited government, but probably it was responsible for the largest expansion of government that we've ever had. I'm thinking about that Louisiana Purchase. You know, the, you know, he's an advocate of liberty, but he held slaves. I mean, uh, he, he talked about uh, being fiscally conservative, but he lived deeply in debt. So I, I think on that part uh, uh, of the subject... Uh, I think the thing to remember, none of us are as moral as the ideas we hold. And, and, and Jefferson uh, is no exception. He just, he just happened to be the guy who came up with this radical idea. Um, Jefferson's imperfections, though, do not diminish, in my view, the radical nature of the idea. Yeah, and, and it's one of the nice things that you do in the book is that you're honest about who these authors were. But then you're doing something yourself with these ideas. You're sort of... Uh, bringing them forward uh, to issues today like voting rights. And I love the metaphor, and I'm just going to ask you to talk to the listeners about it, uh, of jazz, that some, that jazz really, um, a kind of deep understanding of it, gives you a way of thinking about how I take it to play with ideas. So do you want to say just something maybe uh, connecting to, to the comments that you just made about how the jazz metaphor works and, and how people who seem... Uh, you know, so foreign from the idea of jazz, like Thomas Jefferson, actually contribute to to the way well, the metaphor well, if you works. You think about you think about jazz and syncopation, and and a lot of jazz is is sort of that spontaneity, that that creativity, and that has been for me the American narrative. Now it. Probably, I'm guessing, um, I'm going to use my powers of clairvoyance here, or it probably wasn't Jefferson's intention, uh, or, or I, I would say the Declaration is beyond anybody's intention at the time, what it's become. But, but the American narrative has sort of been like jazz. It has been this syncopation, and there's been these solos, and there's been this unpredictability. And, and each time, like one of the things a lot of jazz performers say that when they perform live, it's never the same song. You know? right. and, and it's the same with the American narrative. There, there may be things like this or like that, but it's never the same thing. The, the Teapot Dome scandal under Harding <laughs> isn't Watergate. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, COVID-19 yeah. crisis isn't the Civil War. So everything is different. You know, maybe in a macro sense of similarity, but every, every night is different. And, and that's how jazz is, and that's how the American narrative has been for me. That's how I see it. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I was reading the book, I was thinking the metaphor is very powerful, too, as the reader, and I, I take it as you, as, as the author, that we inherit these ideas. They were played a certain way in the 18th century, and then, of course, we're going to talk about the 19th century as well. Uh, but then they can be reimagined by us in a way that applies to the crises at hand, and we can do a better or worse job, you know, <laughs> just the fact that you're playing a 
uh, solo doesn't mean you're going to play it well. And so well, it, it know, can Corey, be played well. If I may, well. if I can just jump in there because you make a great point. When you think about the Declaration, you, you think about, let's say, it, it, you know, William Lloyd Garrison is using July 4th and the Declaration to critique, you know, the hypocrisy of slavery. Uh, Frederick Douglass does something very similar. 1861, in January, at his farewell address, Jefferson Davis is justifying leaving the Senate based on his understanding of the Declaration. And a couple months later, I think Abraham Lincoln's in Philadelphia, and he says words to the effect that I've never had a political thought that didn't involve the, the, the Declaration of Independence. So my point is, so it becomes this touchstone by which everybody justifies their moral position, but those moral positions are different. So to your point about jazz, it's, it's the same sheet of music, but, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a different way to play it. Coltrane didn't yeah. play it the way Charlie Parker played it. <laughs> Dizzy right, Gillespie right. didn't play it the same way Miles Davis played it, and none of them played it like John Philip Sousa. So it's, it's, it's just different. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to kind of go on to the, um, I mean, I guess if we were, if I, I had any ability as a music critic, I could come up with examples of this. But, you know, there are other people who are taking the metaphor, who are taking the radical idea, playing their own tune um, with it, but but you're extremely critical of them. So one of the things that you rightly uh, lament and think about is is the Supreme Court and it's not only its best moments but its worst moments and one of them I think is uh, you and I agree the Shelby County decision uh, really striking down a fundamental part of this hard fought for uh, 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act and saying you know what all these protections about uh, local government having to uh, clear voting rights changes to to make sure that they're copacetic, that <laughs> they're not intentionally trying to disenfranchise African-American voters. You mentioned that and, you know, you're not happy with the Roberts Court for, for doing that. So what do we do? I mean, I, I want to ask not just about that, but about what we do with people who take the idea. And frankly, it is, I think, probably a majority of the modern Supreme Court, the same ideas that you and I are talking about, the ideals and the aspirations, that's your word that I, I want to keep coming back to, mm -hmm. the aspiration of equality, but then they spin it in a way uh, that's really not, I think, what you and I are talking about. They have an idea of colorblindness, for instance, that um, says that, you know, the moment that you have consciousness of the fact that people are of different races and have faced discrimination or not, depending on that history, uh, we're going to just ignore that, they say, in their idea of colorblindness. They're um, really brutal towards um, the, the need for these protections from 1965 with the thought that maybe things have gotten better when we see uh, in many cases like voter ID that, that they haven't. So what do we do with uh, those who, who are also trying to use these aspirations, but in, in ways that, that you and I at least are worried about? Well, you know, Corey, I, I think that part of that is the job of Corey Bretschneider because, you, ah. you, no, no, and I mean, I'm serious, because it, part of that is enlightenment. I mean, the, the thing is that oftentimes, and I see these cases, and I see people looking at the outcome and judging whether or not they like the decision based on the outcome. I mean, my biggest problem with, 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 with the Shelby case was that Chief, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, offered what, in my view, was a sociological opinion to gut uh, Section 5 of the, of the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, he, he, 
it doesn't look at the history and, and the fact the, the 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 real proof how how bad Roberts got it wrong was and I'm using the Fourth Circuit's language here was the like and I'm in their case about the North Carolina case the Fourth Circuit said with almost surgical precision you know they went back in. These states that were under the Voting Rights Act went back in to make voting more onerous. And then you see, you, then you see local, then you see elected officials then create a try to create a problem that wasn't there. Like we have this mass voting irregularities, and when the fact of the matter is, you know, you can't win with a declining voter base. That's the real issue. And then you yeah. and you and you gut the Voting Rights Act. And so, but but it gets back to that we have to be a more enlightened populace. It just can't be the outcome that determines whether or not I like something. How did the Supreme Court yeah. get there? If, the, if, if, if I may have still disagreed, but if the Supreme Court would have said, you know, based on our understanding of the 15th Amendment, um, we, we think Section 5 should be cut it. But no, Roberts said, oh, we think times are better. That's not your job as a justice yeah. to tell me if times are better. I mean, in a way, this is one instance, a, a crucial instance, but I think it's throughout the book where you say, look, these people who say they love the Constitution, that they love the idea of America, uh, they're not being true to it. They're, they're sort of making it up by using modern facts at their own convenience. And I'm the one uh, that's really working to understand what actually happened. And when you take it seriously, you have a lot of ideas that are I'll just use your word again, radical. So, so that's well, great. I want to, uh, you know, I think that's that's a crucial contribution of the book. It's the thing I love about it, and that you know really speaks to my way of thinking about American history and and political philosophy too. That we can find these ideals in the past. But I want to sort of, as an interviewer, I feel feel an obligation to give some pushback against both of us. So I'm going <laughs> to play that role. I mean. You know, there's a lot of sort of response that would say, look, you guys, um, Byron and Corey, are, you're saying you're radical, you're conservatives. We need a new constitution that ha is founded on new ideals, and, and you're sort of stuck in an old way of thinking. And one place I imagine that they would say it, and, and I think we have good pushback here, is, you know, one of the things that you love in the book is this, you tell the story of the citizenship test and the, the uh, professor, I believe, who, who who gives it to students right, and right. sort of, you know, the idea of, it's Katie you know, Harrigan. we think we know this constitution, but we don't. So, so tell me about that. And then answer this question. Is citizenship one of those old ideas that just keeps us beholden to uh, insiders and outsiders and, and doesn't really allow us to have a full conception of equality and human rights rather than rights of citizenship. I don't know if you heard me, but it, but but but, the, but that actually was Katie Herricker who gives the gives the citizenship test at Wake Forest. You know when you came down, but uh, yes, I met her. Yeah, these two. Yeah. yeah so, but but I, I think the I think the point though I think the point of that citizenship test and and the story is that each year uh, a colleague of, of, of yours and mine that, that she each year gives her incoming freshman students a citizenship test and that the only and the only students most students flunk but 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 the majority of students that pass are students from another country mm. and that's telling in this sense that, you know, and I, I will tag along with that. One of my July 4th traditions in North Carolina every year is that I go 
down to hear the swearing in of new citizens. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I described it as sort of joyous envy uh, that, that, I mean, you see people fighting back tears, you know, because they're, they're, you know, they're about to be citizens. And you and I are, we're, we're just grandfathered in. And right. the problem is if you do that over time, then you, you, you lose sight of what the country stands for. That, 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 uh, you, you lose sight of what's important. And I, as I was saying earlier about we tend to focus on um, uh, the outcome of Supreme Court cases. You know, one of my favorite cases uh, is, is Brandenburg uh, v. Ohio. Uh, mm. Not only one, because it was an 8 nothing ruling, and one of the eight was Thurgood Marshall in support, but also it, it, it was a key lesson in my view that abstract speech, no matter how heinous, how, how reprehensible, is still protected. And it's not just, it's a, it's, a, it's a great reminder, it's not the speech you like. And so, yeah. very much, a lot of America is not on what we like, but our barometer to defend America is can we defend the things we don't like? It's sort of a, it's sort of a, Inverted order to how one looks at stuff, but this is what makes again this experiment, this American experiment, and, and, and this declaration of liberty and equality such a radical proposition. Do you think? Um, I mean, as you were speaking, I, I was reminded of early on in Trump. I, I uh, in the administration, I wrote a piece called "Trump versus the Constitution," partly about how he hadn't read it and certainly didn't understand the Constitution and. Somebody wrote back, it was one of these Facebook things saying, nobody reads the Constitution. It was actually a prominent scholar. And, and uh, my aunt, who's a um, uh, naturalized citizen, wrote back saying exactly what you're saying. Well, I've read it very closely, and so has everybody who's become a citizen. I mean, does that suggest that maybe we all should be taking I know that you know there, there's this great example of students taking it. Should we all take a new citizenship test? Would that be a way of giving sort of new life to the radical ideas well, that you're talking about? Well, I, I went a little further. As you know, I went a little further in Chapter 1 where I suggested that I think the Declaration should be annual reading. Yeah. It, it, it should be annually. Once a year, you should read the Declaration, and, and, and once a year, you should review the Constitution. I mean, one of the tragic – it's a tragic story. It, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic that uh, my other um, July 4th, Tradition is to listen to NPR in the morning when they go, they read the entire Declaration of Independence. They have the various readers. So 2017, in addition to reading it, NPR tweeted out line by line the Declaration. And people thought it was some liberal propaganda yeah. trying to overthrow Trump and got, <laughs> and got vehemently upset. And my point is, it's not pro-Trump or anti-Trump. My point is, when the document that created this nation, when those words right. are not so, immediately right. recognizable, it's a problem. Right, right. Um, I'm anxious to ask you about some more in the book, but I do want to sort of set the book in the context of this group that I know that you have um, uh, created, uh, which is really devoted to, to reading these texts. And, and, and you, you know, you're not surprisingly practicing what you preach. You have this group uh, meant to sort of re-energize the radical idea. How is that? Uh, maybe you could just say a word for listeners who who haven't heard you talk about it and how it how it relates to the themes of the book. Well, 
it, it uh, the, the 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 group uh, was um it was my it was a year in co- my year in column and I decided that I didn't want to just um, I, I was just I started by saying our previous in our previous your previous question we ought to um, read these texts annually and I was re- I was writing the piece and I looked at the piece and I said this feels a little self righteous. And so then I got the idea while writing the piece, I'm, okay, I'm going to invite some people to join me in this reading. And I was surprised at the number of people who went on this year process and which, in which we read uh, the Declaration. We read um, not all of them, but selected um, Federalist Papers. We read Benjamin Rush's 1787 speech, which I think is one of the most profound texts uh, uh, in, 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 in the American narrative, and then we and then we went through the Constitution, and and we had people of various social locations, political backgrounds, and we basically had two rules. Um, rule number one is agreement is overrated, and so you don't have to agree. And, but rule number two is you must begin every statement. Uh, here's how I see it. So you had to take ownership for your position. Like I couldn't say I couldn't say to you. Remember the old Saturday Night Live? You know, Jane, you ignorant slut. I couldn't say that, Corey. That's ridiculous. I had to say, okay, Corey, here's how I see it, which lets me know, which lets you know that I heard what you said, and I'm responding to what you said, and what that did. That's those simple rules took out animosity. And it brought in a sort of a, 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 a friendship. And then I, um, uh, the, the formal end of the class uh, was toward the end of last year. But they have continued as their own group, you know, engaged with each other, talking about current issues. And so th- th- that was it in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that group as you were speaking about the the idea of, of and, and writing actually about the idea of these texts and our sort of common history, our common bond. And, you know, when I was engaging you of what do we do with people who, um, you know, use these texts for reasons that you and I in the Shelby County case, for instance, don't agree with. And your answer, I thought, was really subtle, you know, that, that listeners can think about it. And it evokes the spirit of the group, the spirit of the book which is you don't just say you're wrong. <laughs> you engage through the text in the history and in a dialogue, not in some kind of put-down contest. And, um, I mean, to me, that's one of the great things about the book is it talks about these texts as a sort of common dialogue to both, you know, enable a vision of radicalness, but also to uh, create a kind of community at the same time, even with those that we disagree with. So so great. And I thought your group... Uh, having the honor of speaking to it and seeing it. And um, you had lots of people there, certainly from different political persuasions, yet devoted to this common study. And with the rules of civility that you're talking about, um, it really, you know, you, you made that happen. And glad to hear it's still happening. Let me ask you about another word. We've been talking, I think, if, you, if there was one word um, to um, uh, be, be beyond the radical idea, if there was a word to describe what we've been talking about, it's aspirations, um, and a word that you use in the book. And then I, I want to talk about another word that I think is cr- crucial, too, in the book, and that, that's the word rebirth. Um, and uh, you talk a lot about um, the Civil War, and in particular, the Three Amendments 
uh, that followed the Civil War, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So how does that sort of, you know, well after Jefferson's death, um, that that destructive period in American history, and then that that um, th- those three amendments. The re- how do they relate? Um, how do how do the three amendments relate to the radical idea of the Declaration? Well, Lincoln's actions um, leading up and through the Civil War, and his his uh, thoughts about secession were based on his understanding of the Declaration of Independence. I sort of said earlier, he's, he, Lincoln says in Philadelphia, I have no thought, no political thought that's some, not somehow related to the Declaration. And then, uh, and then Lincoln begins what is the most famous speech, the best speech, in my opinion, in American history. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth to this country a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So that, that's, so for Lincoln, for the civil, I mean, that's sort of, that's the nexus. That's the, that's the starting point. Now, we can talk about Lincoln's execution uh, what he did, what he didn't do. I mean, that's fair game. But but the starting point is this is this radical declaration that that is so uh, fervent. So in that speech, in the same Gettysburg Address, you know, Lincoln gets down toward the end and says, "Now we're going to have a rebirth. We're going we're going we're going we're going to have this this do over. We we have this great foundation, but we've gotten off kilter. And that and I'll just say for a minute, we've gotten off kilter because the uh, it's important to remember there's an, what was edited out of the Declaration was a stinging critique on the slave trade. And that was the piece that was largely edited out of the text. Um, mm. I, I, my thinking was, and what I, un, my understanding is, the founders were more concerned about independence and didn't want to get bogged down in secondary issues. And the efficacy of human bondage was obviously a secondary issue. So... So, but they punted on so so right there. You you have this gap. They punted on slavery there. Um, then you get to the Constitution with the three with the three fifths compromise. Sort of again a punt on slavery. The Missouri Compromise a punt on slavery. Kansas Nebraska Act a punt on slavery. So so by the time you get to the Civil War, there's no more punting. And that Lincoln then says we're going to have a rebirth. We're, 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 no, we're going to do it over. And 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 he was alive, you know, for the vote on the Thirteenth Amendment because he wasn't sure that he could just end slavery by executive fiat. And and then you had, um, but the Thirteenth Amendment, you had lang- uh, the original language of the Thirteenth Amendment. Well, there was an amendment rather that Sumner offered, and justice for all. And that got struck down because they were afraid that women might want to vote. <laughs> And so then you had the 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 uh, civil rights bill, but civil rights law bill of sixty six, eighteen sixty six, and that didn't go far enough. Which then which then gives you the Fourteenth Amendment. And what the Fourteenth Amendment does is the Fourteenth Amendment takes the ethos of the Declaration of Independence and puts it right into the Constitution. It says mm. equality. And so it takes the ethos of the Declaration and puts it into the Constitution. The other thing it also does is that it also introduces the doctrine of incorporation, which then said, you know, these Bill of Rights, or at least most of them, are now applicable to the state. So we, if we're going to say equal, you can't have one standard of equal in Nebraska and a different standard of equal in Alabama. So the ethos of the Declaration becomes 
firm. And this is all part of that rebirth that 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 Lincoln right. that Lincoln talked about and, and envisioned. So we've got the founding radical idea, and the text there is the Declaration, and then the other equally important text in American history, re rebirthing that radical idea are the 13th Amendment, ending slavery, but really doing more than that, and the 14th Amendment especially, in its guarantee of equal protection of the law. Um, let me talk about, um, you know, part of the book is is you doing jazz and riffing and thinking about these ideas and how they've mattered still in American history and, and defending them too as a sort of common way of uh, working through differences and, and pushing us forward. Uh, but there are also heroes of yours, I take it, that you're emulating. Uh, one of them is certainly Martin Luther King, and in, I know you and I have talked about it, and I was happy to see it in the book, that, that last speech that he gives. Um, so let, let, let's hear some about King. Tell us about him. Tell us about this uh, last speech and how he used the radical idea and how he related to it. And I have a related question, too, to the one I asked before about what we would say to those who think that we're really moderates, not radicals in, in buying. <laughs> all these, right, let me, let me do the king these, first, because I, I, I can't, because I'm, I'm not like you. I can't hold all that. So I, let me do this one yeah. first. <laughs> well, well, tell, you know, tell, I, tell I, me, I, I have a separate question. Tell me about King and why he's how he works in the book, and okay. and and also why he's a, why he's using a radical idea. Well, King King works in the book because Martin Luther King had this brilliant way of expanding the notion of we the people, and expanding this notion that just because and this sort of goes to your initial question to me, just because it may not have been the intent of the artisans, these are the words, and therefore. Uh, mm. Therefore, we're going to hold the country accountable to those words. Uh, you you had you know uh, you had Lincoln cite the 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 Declaration of Independence at the Gettysburg Address. One hundred years later, on the steps of the Washington Monument, King is citing the exact same document to justify. Mm you know, what America needed to do in 1963. And in that very last speech, you know, he, he's talking about equality for, 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 and dignity for sanitation workers. And he says, you know, what we, what we say to America, be true to what you said on paper. Here, these are the things you committed to. We're not asking for anything other than what America has committed to. And that was sort of the, that was sort of the ethos of, of, the, of the King philosophy through nonviolence. And, and, and I took that that idea and tried to make it the ethos of my book. It's, it's not about what anybody intended. It's not about what anybody right. wants. It's, it's, this, is, this is what it is. <laughs> right. I mean, one of the things that I was struck by in reading it, and, and in, I remember a conversation with you when I was um, down uh, speaking at Wake Forest and to your group, um, that refrain in the speech, and certainly after we spoke, I, I went and and watched it and read it and then saw your terrific treatment of it too in the book. And to me, the, the phrase that he uses that really sums up this idea, it's not about the intent. It's certainly not about going back to our very first conversation, the biography of Jefferson and was he good or not. It's about what they wrote and about the idea. And the, the refrain somewhere I read is really yeah. saying, you know, it's in there. Right. <laughs> like I actually read it. Yeah. And it's matter what all this other history is so so i thought that 
really gets to your point yeah, about that is my why to text. I don't, I don't care. I don't. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about the fact that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, but that's not a right. reason. That's not the point. I don't care. Right. What did he write? And wh what did we read? Importantly, because you know, in a way, it doesn't matter what he was writing it for. What matters is what we're going to use it for and what we're able to read ourselves and do with it. And that, that you know, King saying that over and over again right. uh, in a sort of lyrical way, you know, it's inspiring. You feel it. And, of course, the fact that it's the last speech is um, gives it a whole other level of um, emotional um, content. So... Um, moderates. Uh, you asked about moderates. They were not moderates. Why is this radical? Yeah, that was going to be my, my follow-up. I mean, uh, I think you, you've started to answer it, but, but you know... Do you, do you think that, I guess one thing that I could ask that I think you will get from interviewers about the book is that the thing that might make you Byron, even though you, you um, in my view, you know, we, we're radicals in the best sense, but, but I imagine people will say that the text is so bad on the thing that matters the most right now as we're going through this second Great Depression and going through the COVID crisis, which is economic justice and a sense of inequality and speaking out against massive inequalities and in distribution of wealth. That, that's just not in the document, I could imagine somebody saying, and it's not the meaning of equality that we've been talking about so far, at least. So where's the economic justice in your vision, Byron? Do you, do you, or are you not a radical in that sense? No, no, I, I, think, I, think the, I think the economic justice ultimately comes from, and, I'm, and then I'll just start with the preamble of the Constitution, it comes from we the people. Now, one of the points, yeah. one of the points that I make in um, the book is that, again, similar to constitutional interpretation, it doesn't matter whether or not I like the protests or the movement, but but it, but this but it matters this way. If you take the the, the framers, the framers of the, of the Declaration of Independence, and you take that movement. There is a line that you can draw that gets you to Black Lives Matter. And so the Declaration of Independence is a document that says we have an issue. Black Lives Matter says we have an issue. The Declaration of Independence then says we think this is how the issue should be addressed. Black Lives Matter says uh, we think this is how the issue should be addressed. And then in that, and this is all in one paragraph, by the way, and then it ends yeah. by saying, we are morally justified to pursue it this way. And Black Lives Matter is saying the exact same thing. So I would reject those and say, whereas the, 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 the income inequality is not there, I mean, it's not there. It says, it does say equality, but the income inequality has to be addressed by us. But the declaration lays the predicate so that those who want economic justice can pursue it, and in doing so, they are ex right in step with the founders, uh, uh, with the artisans of the, of the Declaration of Independence, in my view. Yeah. How great. is that for radical? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and also your point, too, I, I don't want listeners to lose about Martin Luther King, that, you know, this was about justice for janitors, that he was out there... Um, on the picket line, and it wasn't like he was ignoring economic issues right. uh, in that that last breath. Um, uh, and that powerful speech is partly about that, of course. Um, let me uh, go to sort of um, question two about, I mean, it connects, I think, to the entire book, really to our whole conversation 
uh, as we get towards the end, which is, you know, some people might say, I face this a lot, and, and this is just something I want to think together about, which is, you know, we don't want to read the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, maybe the Declaration, but these cases, Shelby County, that's for lawyers, and that's something that judges do, and they have a kind of expertise that we don't. And, you know, I've spent, I think, most of my career not teaching law students, although I've done that a lot too, but teaching um, people who are going to be citizens, not lawyers. To, and and my deep desire, and it's a desire that I see as central to your book, is to take these radical ideas and bring them directly to the people. So can you just say something about how you hope your book will succeed in furthering that mission, what the challenges are in getting people to see that these documents, these ideas are not just for lawyers and professionally changed well, let's start, let's start with this. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, but I think that's an advantage. You know, I guess that's what I'm saying, frankly, that, you know, I am trained as a lawyer and I do sometimes teach in law schools and I'm disgusted by the idea that somehow it's the legal profession that owns these ideas. It's not. It's, uh, as you said, we the people. And how do we bring that back? That's the challenge that you're addressing, that you're doing. And I, I, you know, how can we together work to get people to care about what you and I are talking? Now, I know we care about it, and yeah. we're happy to talk no, about it's, it, it's, but how it's, do we it's, it's a great question. I, I think that, I, I think that um, there, there's a word that I like to use a lot also that I think is applicable here. If you understand the nuance of these texts, I think if more people, if, if, you, if you just say that, say, Shelby or, or Plessy v. Ferguson, you know, mm. use the 14th Amendment to justify Jim Crow segregation. So, I mean, that, that may glaze over. You and I may talk about that. That, you know, that, that, that may glaze over a lot of people. But if you said to them, how is it that you could use the 14th Amendment to justify Plessy v. Ferguson, in 1896, and then in 1954, use the 14th Amendment to overthrow Plessy v. Ferguson. I mean, yeah. It, and it's something that's applicable to everybody's life. I mean, so, so I mean, these texts are important, and, and they're, they're not the private domain um, of lawyers. I mean, I've had people email me about my weekly column. You're not a lawyer. How can you talk about the Constitution? Because I, I'm a citizen. That's why I can talk about exactly. the Constitution. Exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> the right response. And I think, too, just going back to your point in your example, you know, maybe people don't know the name of the case, but they've heard of separate but equal and they have a view of it. And, you know, what's good about great about the book and about the discussion group and the, the larger discussion that you and I have been having is that these moral principles are not the domain of some special profession. They're the domain of citizens in a democracy who want to, you know, who can feel them and who can understand them and who can defend them and know what they are. And that's, I think, what's great about the book and the challenge of, you know, your column and the radio show is to engage people in a moral discussion about the Constitution. And that's something that we've just lost by these so-called experts beating us down with their some often I'm going to you know not be shy here fake history uh, with their legalese and uh, trying to hide the reality that you're bringing out which is no this is about morality it's about well it's the name of the show it's about a public morality well you know, the one of the things I, I like to say the, the way I like to frame it Corey is that I, I call my radio show I, I was the public morality and the reason so is because it comes from the Declaration of Independence the Constitution and the right. Emancipation Proclamation the way I sum that up 
the the declaration is what it is and the constitution is the how and the emancipation comes along with this because because we are these other two things we're going to do this and so that that sort of frames in my view this public morality and, yeah. and, and that it is open for all of us. I mean, it, it, if, if, if someone sees me as liberal, if someone sees me as non-radical, I mean, what, what I hope to do was to leave space for dialogue. I'm, I'm, my book, I'm not trying to be the last word, you know, on, 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 right. this, on this, on, on this uh, subject. I'm trying to create a, some space where someone who's diametrically opposed you know, people of different social locations based on gender, orientation, race, can all see how these issues of, of, of power and oppression, how they, and they all have a valid truth. How do people with different income levels have a conversation about these documents and still have a valid truth? That's, that's what the project is, in my view. I think part of the challenge, too, is sort of building people's confidence once you start to do it and you start to own these materials and to have views about it, uh, it gets harder for uh, the professionals and the so-called experts to, to beat you down. Uh, I'll tell a quick story, uh, which is that, um, and just on this theme, that when Justice Kavanaugh was going through his confirmation hearing, uh, not my favorite justice, as you know, um, uh, he was asked about a piece I had written saying, you know, don't trust this guy. He has a radical view uh, not radical in the sense of the ideas that we're talking about, but a radical view of how powerful the president is. Unlimited presidency, basically, was my worry. And uh, he said, well, Senator, he's not a law professor when he was asked about this piece. <laughs> and I felt like, wow, yeah. this guy <laughs> is everything. This was before Blasey Ford's accusation, too. I thought this guy is everything that's wrong with the way that people think about the Constitution. And um, you know, kudos to you for pushing back and really empowering people to take these texts, to own them. Uh, they are in the public domain and they're things that we should uh, take ownership of, I think. So thanks for writing this book. Thank you. You've been listening to The Public Morality with guest host Corey Brechneider. Uh, I've been interviewing the normal host, uh, Byron Williams, um, about uh, his new book. And um, my sincere hope is that you'll uh, check it out because this isn't uh, a book uh, just for uh, historians, although I think a lot of historians will learn from it. It's not just for lawyers, although lawyers need to read it and will learn for it. It's, it's a book for uh, everyone, for all the people. And it's a continuation of his uh, public spirited um, uh, dialogues uh, in North Carolina. Uh, and his radio show that you've been listening to, The Public Morality. Uh, and it's a real tribute uh, to uh, how to uh, take the framers' ideas and uh, make them live uh, today for all of us in a way that will further justice going forward. Uh, so, Byron, I just want to thank you uh, for all that you've done and for writing the book. Uh, and thank you to the listeners, too. And I want to thank today's guest host, Professor Corey Brechneider. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to, to broadcast the public morality at their studios. 
Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>